You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome. You found Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz. Follow the show on America's Web Radio on Twitter and iTunes. Search Lawyer Liz Podcast. And while I am an attorney with the Atlanta office of Halby Smith, the show is not intended as legal advice. Instead, it's a weekly look at all the buzz surrounding autonomous cars, drones, and the Internet of Things and all the technology in between. So thank you for joining us. And if you were attempting to go to certain websites or uh, you know, catch up on various news feeds on this past Friday, and we're, of course, recording this and airing live on Wednesday October 25th, but if you were trying to connect to certain websites, you may have noticed that they were either down, that folks couldn't tweet, couldn't uh, get on and read or listen to their music, and so today we're going to talk about, well, how the Internet of Things, which is in part blamed for what is what went on on Friday, but how the Internet of Things will, can, could break the Internet. And who better to discuss this with than a friend of the show and frequent contributor and pontificator of information security and all things related than Rob Graham, CEO, co-founder of Errata Security, and will be joined later in the show by Josh Corman, the Director for Cyber Statecraft with the Atlantic Council, to talk about where do we go from here? How do we incorporate fixes and ways to prevent or address these issues from happening again? So with that, Rob, welcome to the show. and. Uh, hopefully you weren't interrupted too much on Friday. Uh, no. I, I, I don't think most people noticed the outage. There's only a few people who noticed it. Well, a few people on the West Coast, perhaps. A few people on the East Coast, I think. Well, one of the coasts. I say, if my siblings are to be trusted, which, side note, they never are, uh, or rarely, uh, there was disruptions to some of the music streaming services. Spotify, yeah. Yes, that elicited a few uh, choice words that the FCC would not permit me to uh, describe. But uh, if the Twitter... Uh, hordes are to be believed it was awful it was the world was coming to an end because spotify and the new york times websites were unavailable quite as dramatic as that or nah well according to the stats there were the outage lasted like 30 minutes or something like that or an hour i say depending on the waves of attacks yeah so there was two attacks that happened like at um, like 7 a.m. and then later at like noon or something. I forget the exact times. And each lasted for like only a half an hour, 45 minutes. Well, and, and given today's current political situation, I don't know that many people would have complained had politicians uh, 
Twitter feeds been unavailable. But uh, Spotify or some of the music services it could make for a boring day at the office. Well, actually, for those music uh, services, if they're down for an hour, that's an hour's worth of advertising they, they lose in money. That can actually be a, a significant uh, hit to, to the bottom line. Well, and an excellent point. So what happened? Best we can tell, of course. Um, the Internet works with, with numbers, numeric addresses, that we never deal with as humans. We deal with a website's name, like Spotify or Twitter. And there's a service called DNS, Domain Name Service, which means it, it's just a type of phone book, basically. And, so, and, and translates the, what are the names of the sites that we use to the actual numeric addresses. And when, and when that fails, the internets are still actually reachable technically, but since you don't, you can't translate the names to the, to the numbers, uh, the websites go down. So the internet fails when DNS fails. So when you can't reach these numbers, you know, the websites and it, the DNS server, I mean, this doesn't happen frequently. No. So the DNS, uh, the way it works is that there's sort of this root system that for two decades we've talked about as if I were to take down the Internet, I would attack the root. Use a DDoS, use, use all these different devices and infected virus, virus-infected machines all across the Internet and just f- tell them just to flood the, the root servers. And so that actually we protect against. So that's been discussed for 20 years, and we defend against that. So taking down the entire Internet this way is impractical. What these attackers did was they they took out the most popular DNS provider, one step down from the root, which is called Dyn or Dyn, Dyn DNS. And so instead of attacking the root, which is impractical, they attacked the leading provider, which had then the effect of taking down very popular services that we use. So essentially, instead of taking down, for example, a major news network itself, they just went to the Comcast service provider and took out the middleman. Right, took out the middleman that affected everything downstream. Well, and so you talk about the DDoS you mentioned and articles about this how does this, you know, this flooding of it's a directed denial of service, or it's called distributed denial of service? And what mm-hmm. that means is, is it came from the early days of people playing games on the internet. And so the the deal was is that if I just had my machine flood your machine, on if my internet connection was faster than yours, and I just flooded you, was by just sending you, net, you know. Just blind network traffic doesn't mean anything. I would cause your connection to slow down, and then I would win the game because my connection is faster. So, so that, that's DOS, just mm-hmm. one D. DDoS is distributed denial of service, where I take many machines and tell them to flood your connection, thus distributing my attack across many machines. So now I have a 10 to 1, 100 to 1, 1,000 to 1, or in this case, it's, it's about 100,000 machines. Uh, or devices on the internet that were used to then flood one particular service provider. So they received this command or instruction from somewhere. Right. To uh, okay. they were infected with the virus first. Yes. And how how does that occur? I mean, in this case, we hear it was our DVRs and our webcams. Right. DVR in this case does not mean the one you're using to record your TV shows. It means they're devices for recording surveillance videos. So every office building in the United States these days have surveillance cameras. And they're Internet connected, and then they go to a box, a DVR, or they're also called NDRs, uh, to record the videos. 
and took a hard drive. So that if they if the place is robbed, they can go back a month later and say, "Hey, look, let's look at the old videos and see who robbed us, who, who burgled, who broke that window." And so the thing about these is that they tend to be outside of firewalls. So they're business devices that often have their own dedicated internet connection. So there's, there's just the internet, and they're raw on the internet with no protection. Most devices that we own are behind our own home firewall or a corporate firewall. So that's why these video surveillance systems were used rather than all these other possibilities. It's because they're easier to get at. So it wasn't necessarily my coffee maker that right. is connected. It, it was instead, you know, as you said, these separate standalone systems but how i mean as you said there were hundreds of thousands that the dine uh, estimates about a hundred thousand systems that's what their estimate is some people have said only fifty thousand systems some people said a million systems so it's kind of hard to, to know exactly what the number is when you start thinking about as you noted how many Every office building, it seems like these days, has a security system. So, are they? Was there something special about the ones that were used or infected with the right. malware? Or? These were a specific model that have a backdoor password in them. That have like admin as the backdoor password. If you, if you connect to them and type in admin as the password, it lets you in and lets you control the device. And these are pre-programmed passwords. They're not ones you said the backdoor. It's kind of automatic. Right. The devices come with that, and it's sometimes hard or impossible for the user to change them. So they're always there. And so since there's no firewall to stop you from connecting to the devices, you can anyone can just log on and take control of the device, install their own software, like, a.k.a. a virus or a botnet, and then use that to then attack someone else. So really there was nothing the individual office complex owner who had installed this system or their security uh, company had installed this system in large part, the manufacturers had locked them out from being able to change that password. Right. So what happens when they receive the command, they flood? I mean, do you, if you know that your device or is there a way to target, well, suddenly there's a higher rate of traffic or my devices are ticking up right. their on, on, your, on your connection, you'll be higher rate of traffic. You'll see that, hey, there's a spike in traffic. But most people don't know that because they don't look at their connections. They have no idea what traffic goes across their, their connection. So if you don't know what's going on, if you, you know, from an office or business owner standpoint, who who was? Was it Dime, this, uh, the DNS service provider, noticed the floods first? Or how did everyone become alerted that that was the root of the problem? Well, it's, it's been growing over the last year. Uh, people have been discussing these surveillance systems and all the, the, the problems they have. It's not just this backdoor password, but there's, they have other problems where they're open and available to anyone who connects to them. So there's a, there's a, set, there's a small set of problems that they have, and people have been discussing them. Um, some hackers out there, probably amateur hackers and not state-sponsored is the current feeling, uh, wrote but a little... did you roll your attribution uh, dice to determine that, Rob? <laughs> because if you haven't, if you didn't use the dice and you didn't use the attribution 8-ball, I don't know that we can trust your uh, assessment there. What Liz is referring to is the fact that whenever we try to, whenever experts try to attribute where attacks came from, we go from guesses off of very little information. So we really don't know. But the current guess, which we probably did by rolling some dice, is that they came from amateurs. 
um, some amateurs wrote some code, a very simple virus that would, once it broke into one machine, would start randomly connecting to other devices on the Internet and trying to log on with, with the default passwords onto new machines and spread itself that way. And so that code was published, and we could look at it and read it. And it's very, it's, it's not bad code, but it's also not what, you, what we expect from a nation-state actor. So we, that's why we suspect more amateurs. Unless, you know, nation states are teaching, you know, a middle school uh, or, from the sounds of it, perhaps an elementary school exercise in uh, coding that went awry, uh, that's, it, it didn't have the uh, Rob Graham finesse to it is what you're saying? I don't know. If I, if I were to write code like this, if I were a nation state actor, I'd actually write it like this and make it look a little bit more simple and so that it wouldn't point to a nation state actor. So maybe that's... Again, that's attribution. Hmm. Attribution. We've got to roll the dice, the eight ball, maybe give it another shake. Well, once that started happening, I mean, is it something that you can, you know, and how to stop them is certainly a question because if such attacks are able to knock out these services and we're seeing more and more of it, hold that thought, think about it, uh, what we can do, because we're going to go to our first commercial break on Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, America's Web Radio. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Hopefully you're catching us live Wednesdays from 2 to 3 Eastern, if not, 
catch us on iTunes or any of the other podcast streaming services, Lawyer Liz. And today we are talking about what happens when the IoT attacks the Internet. And Rob Graham with Errata Security is with us. And right before the break, Rob, we were talking about, okay, we've set up how this attack on last week occurred, or at least the best guesstimates. Now, so now that we've had our our uh, webcams and other security cameras attack the Internet, is it a one-time shot? I mean, as you said, it could have been amateurs. It could have been nation state. We're going to call it an elementary school coding project. How do we protect against this? I mean, so the first question is, is um, whether this, whether this will happen again. So um, Washington, you look at senators in Washington have now written letters saying, hey, we need to investigate this, pass laws to stop this from happening again. Of course, rattle the sabers. Because we don't want, you know, the internet to go out. And that's a fallacy. The thing is, is this, this attack happened on Friday, but we also learned from the attack. We learned how to redo things and how to do something slightly different so this attack would no longer work. It's like a joke. Some jokes are funny uh, all the time. You can tell a joke as many times as you want. Like a chicken crosses the road, it's always a funny joke. Other jokes are funny once. You tell a joke once, and then people will just boo you if you make the joke again. This is a funny once DDoS, which means it worked on Friday. It won't work next Friday. Well, and one of the the manufacturer for a majority of the cameras it already admitted, okay, we don't have a way to change that password. I mean, because when you hear about attacks like this, or even just uh, other botnet malware kind of issues, everyone says, "Well, change your password." That if you keep the default passwords, you know, it's a pox on you. But when you can't change the passwords, that changes the game a little bit and with these i understand they're anticipating a recall of the devices and no that's just words um <laughs> this is an oem manufacturer which means they don't produce the devices themselves they produce mm-hmm. the hardware and other vendors sell the hardware to end customers and the end customers who buy this install them in the back room somewhere and forget where they bought them or whatever so they there's no recall there's no contact with the vendor in order to say hey you should you know, change your device. And many of these devices, they recall means what? Send them back to the manufacturer? No, these are like $30 devices sometimes. It's, you throw them away and buy a new one. You don't send them back to get them fixed somehow. Well, and is it something that other manufacturers have addressed? So if I go throw mine away and can no. go to Best Buy, we'll everyone... Have a, you'll just have a different set of problems. Well, that that's comforting. Not really, but... Pretty much every device you get that's going to be like a camera or a toaster or a fridge or whatever is going to have vulnerabilities. Maybe not this one, but different security problems that hackers can use to break in and install them. The The most effective thing you can do is make sure you install them behind a firewall and not out on the Internet, exposed to the Internet. So it sounds like there are some commonalities between the issues in that maybe it's passwords, maybe it's this, but... It, there are different approaches to fixing, I mean, putting behind a firewall or uh, allowing for changes, or is it something where put it behind the firewall and you've just eliminated 70% of what we know to be the attack well, surfaces today, now? Well, today, 
putting them behind the firewall today is the is the solution. A couple of years from now, when homes are full of these devices, when hackers break into your desktop machine because they use phishing or some other attack to convince you to install a virus on your on your laptop, they're going to go and attack these devices from your laptop, and then they're going to start owning them. So then, even behind the firewall, is not going to be not going to protect you. Well, we've talked before on the show about when your devices rat you out and when they're leaking information right. and when they're doing it. So this just seems like another item to add to the list. Uh, the software on these devices is horrible. They're cheap. The, the, the people putting these devices together have very little knowledge about what, what they're doing with the software. They sort of flail around until things work and then ship it. Which is not very comforting thinking that, I mean, hopefully you would see better software on your car. I mean, your Tesla that I hear made a famous road trip recently. Yes, Liz is referring to the fact that herself, myself, and and her fiancé went on a two-day road trip or three-day road trip. Where they forced me to use the autopilot on Tesla, uh, much to my dismay initially, but was impressed with at least where we've come on the sensors. But even Tesla's... uh, Updating their software constantly. Yeah, right before the road trip, they updated the software to repair some vulnerabilities that would allow hackers from the home network, not from the internet, but from the home network, to to attack the, the Tesla and break into it and do whatever they want with it. But had they updated your software before the road trip? Well, yes, that, that's one of the advantages of the Tesla. The, the security is still they're still trying to figure that out, like everyone else. But they do have the one essential feature, which is they do install patches. So I don't have to be really paying attention and the patches get installed um so the but everyone else though with all these other devices they don't have patches you install this little box this camera your toaster your fridge and you're never going to patch it ever again so when security when hackers find security problems they'll they'll never get fixed so putting behind a firewall and having a means of patching because nothing is perfect that we know of yet seem like t- a good start. The other thing is, for your home, the, the real ways that homes need to be done is to, ha- to have two separate internal networks. And people, it's, it's really easy if you're a geek like me, but it's hard if you're everyone else, is to have it on a separate Wi-Fi network. So all your devices are on one network and your desktops and your laptops are on a different network so that when you infect yourself with a virus, and you will, it won't spread to your devices. Or conversely, all the privacy invading stuff that these devices do that try to figure out who you are and 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 tell it to the manufacturers and upload it to their cloud servers, they can't find you either. So it goes both ways. It's a privacy helping and a security helping thing. So we have the firewall. We have the, you know, putting it there, having the uh, patch ability, but also that second... Segmentation. Yeah, segmenting out, which makes sense and are all things you have pointed out uh, previously on the show. But... Going back, uh, once again, you wrote a very insightful uh, blog post on Arata's blog, but it t- one of the points that you went through ties back into a discussion we had on prior episodes of the show, so I have to plug those, dealing with campaigns and elections. And you know, to some degree, yes, there are flaws in our how the voter rolls are stored on the machines. Because again, when you're doing stuff electronically, but is Friday's was Friday's attack a precursor or things to come for November eighth? No, it's 
whatever problems our election systems have right now, we do have electronic voting machines. Those problems, they're off the Internet. And so this sort of attack has nothing to do with them. The most this attack might do is take down CNN or New York Times where people get their news or these days Twitter or Facebook. If you take down that and people can't figure out who's winning the election, then rumors will fly and people will start rioting, rioting in the streets. It can't change the results, but it might upset people if you do just the right DDoS at just the right time. Well, you know, I have to admit, if, if there are going to be long voting lines and I can't stream, again, the music or get my Twitter feed, uh, what am I going to do? And how am I going to post that selfie of me in the voting booth? So, so you've come up with a strategy. So you look at the places that you don't, like, you know, look for a state that's or a, an area that is uh, leans towards one candidate or the other. You DDoS the phone says the, the mobile phone uh, towers in those areas. Then people are not willing to stand if they can't get if they can't be using their phone accessing social media while they're standing in line. They'll get bored and they'll leave and they won't go vote. So that's what you do. That's, that's how you use DDoS is you target just those areas that are leaning one area to state. So that the people can't just get bored out of their skulls standing in line. Because, of course, you can talk to the people around you. Who does that anymore? No. Chumps. Or bring printed reading material. Yeah. It's, it's, no. it, it is. Chumps do that. So, so therefore, that's how you use DDoS to influence election. But, no, I, it, it, this is just fun to think about, but no one's going to do that. Well, and it's also important to note that in some states it is actually illegal to take video, photographs, or other recordings of even yourself in the voting booth. Uh, yes, but we're talking about going in front of the voting booth in your, while you're in line. True, true. But uh, is I believe it's Michigan It currently has a court case moving forward on an expedited basis that would remove their ban of selfies in the voting booth. On the way here, on the news, it was saying that Justin Timberlake, who posted a picture of himself voting, is now under investigation. He should be under investigation for many things, but for many crimes. I don't know that that is particularly one we should spend resources on. But, well, okay, now that you've outlined how you're going to take down the voting systems mm-hmm. uh, and uh, what what happens next, I mean, you've got the, the Senate uh, committee on newly formed a caucus on cybersecurity or cybers, the cybers, and they're rattling their swords and sending letters to, was it the FCC of fix this? And you hear all these other folks going, well, there's something should be done. It's yeah, broken. These are just the villagers with the pitchforks who, who don't understand what, what Frankenstein is doing in his castle and want to go break it down. Um, the thing is, is that the internet is a font of innovation. These problems that we have, they're transitory. Uh, this problem appeared this, this, this year. And in reality, it's, it's nothing compared to the context. We have more desktops infected with viruses that could be used for an attack like this for 20 years. And it hasn't, you know, and we've had DDoS problems with other parts of the internet. And Congress hasn't rattled its saber for good reason. Because if you want to start regulating this, start punishing the vendors, well, vendors will do that by stopping innovation. 
we, the reason you can get the internet on your toaster is because some person with a bright idea can just throw it together. Yeah, they know nothing about security, but cool, we now have toasters. But do you really need your toaster to connect to the internet? I mean, I've seen some for your I toilet paper roll uh, will connect of to course, the internet. Of course, I understand why that why you wouldn't want that. Uh, well, <laughs> it might forever solve the over under on the toilet paper roll uh, where the patent application itself. I didn't. want to be able to download gifts to the toaster so that would then burn the pattern of the gif right into the toast. Well, Doesn't everyone want that? I, I don't know. I mean, would and you offer guests breakfast without you know an image on the toast? I You know, I just might. And we're about to jump to a commercial break. And we come back, Rob will be joined by Josh Corman. And we will get into the patterns to burn on your toast. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz. And we're coming to you from America's Web Radio. Find us online or on iTunes and other streaming uh, services for podcasts. And before the break, we were talking with Rob Graham from Arata Security on what happens when the IoT attacks the Internet. And we're joined now by Josh Corman, the Director for Cyber Statecraft with the Atlantic Council. So uh, right before the break, uh, Josh, so first of all, Josh, welcome to the show. But 
before the break, Rob was explaining how he thinks it's great that toasters and gifts or can burn different images onto your toast. It, what image would you have burned on your toast or your friend's toast? Uh, I would probably have to do a profile pic of Rob's beautiful face. I concur. I think that should be on everyone's toast. But, uh, Josh, welcome, and you're coming to us, and I appreciate particularly your time today because you're knee-deep on some of these issues at the moment. Yes. (laughs) It it worked out perfectly. We have the Health and Human Services uh, Cybersecurity Task Force that Congress asked for in CISA last December. And uh, we happen to have a 30-minute break to catch our breath, and it perfectly aligned with you. Well, thank you for sharing uh, and foregoing your coffee or bathroom break time and instead joining us. That I think it's going to be interesting because you're on the forefront of dealing with security in these IoT devices. And Rob and I were talking about kind of the saber rattling from Congress. How's that going? Are they understanding the issue? And is Congress the right place to get it fixed? Uh, Let's see. I mean, there's quite a conversation and set of conversations going on across the government. And it's not just U.S., but to quickly enumerate people and agencies that are talking about IoT security or or food labels for IoT security or even software liability or um, lots of points in between like software supply chain transparency. Um, Just to name a few, the Food and Drug Administration came out with uh, post-market guidance for protected medical devices this January and is expected to have their final guidance at the end of this year. And that's getting some discussion today, which I will come back to. NTIA just last week is part of the U.S. Department of Commerce is convening discussions for voluntary best practices on patching and updatability of IoT, um, more of a voluntary approach to say you should advertise if you're able to be updated and for how long you commit to doing so. Stuff like that will come out in probably a year-long process like we saw with coordinated vulnerability disclosure. The FTC, Federal Trade Commission, put out their Start with Security 10 Principles um, we just had uh, Assistant Secretary Robert Silvers from DHS uh, kind of outline some principles that we expect will come out by the end of the year from DHS for safety-critical IoT hygiene expectations. Um, the presidential, uh, with the White House Presidential Commission on Enhancing Cybersecurity has uh, asked for several testimonies, including myself and Sarah Zetko and others, to talk about um, signaling and market transparency for IoT safety. So this isn't just a congressional thing, but yesterday you did see Senator Warner um, write another letter to um, a couple different agencies, FCC, FTC, and I forget the third at the moment. Um, And it's very similar in spirit to the letter they wrote on the Internet of Toys earlier in the year for being concerned about uh, children's safety and Internet-connected things. So I don't think this is simply a legislative approach. I think you're seeing a critical mass on we probably need to look at free market and regulatory and government um, well, considerations. 
It sounds like everybody is jumping into the game. They all want to be Beltway ballers. That you can't, they want an invitation to the basketball game. They want a spot on the team. But what's the what's the benefit if you have lots of bark, lots of, well, these are best practices, these are guidelines, uh, recommendations, uh, polite requests, if there's no bite to it. Yeah, I mean, there's some criticism. In fact, on Monday, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration finally came out with their long-anticipated uh, cybersecurity guidelines, and, and they stated them as guidelines, not as rulings. So there's a lot of voluntary language being tossed around. Um, but I think that's actually starting to change. And one of the sleight of hands I'm slowly ping- picking up on when I spend more time in Washington is if you have a, like a law enforcement group like FTC, even a voluntary guideline, if it becomes considered to be a you know a standard of care, even if it's self-regulated, it now becomes something that can be used in an argument that you are above or below. I think in some cases, like FDA or or maybe NHTSA, they want to start with guidelines which mature into requirements. When and, um, there's it- a strong allergy. Just as a macro point, I'm sure Robert agrees, but there's a strong allergy to regulate IT at all. Well, yes, of course, because then you're going to kill the, the goose who laid the golden egg. It's very easy to have regulation like software liability and make these vendors responsible for the security problems. What that will do is that will just discourage them from creating new innovation because innovation means risk and they're not willing to take the risk. It means, for example, that... You know, if you if you and your friend have a bright idea for a toaster or something, you want to put it on the internet. Right now, with the way things are, is you can go to you take your design, write some software, go to China, have them build the devices, and ship them to to the United States and create a little um, um, Kickstarter project and and sell ten thousand of these things and make a bunch of money and get rich maybe, maybe start a company that produces these things or maybe go out of business. But you can't take those risks when the regul- when the regulators come on and say, no, you have to spend a year going through this validation process to make sure you have no security flaws, in which case you can't afford to do that. You just don't, you don't do the Kickstarter project. You don't get rich. You just stay with your humdrum job. Well, and two, how do you enforce when you've got, you know, who is the software manufacturer? or breaking it down and and Rob was explaining before with some of the cameras in question on Friday's attack that you've got several different players involved in the mix that how do you identify well you're the one who should have caught this so uh, you know to answer a very narrow specific question it's just an indicator there's lots of aspects to this but you know a hundred years ago and you're a lawyer, I hear. <laughs> um, Rumored, allegedly. The McPherson, yeah, the McPherson case, uh, we have case law for this, where the tires made by Firestone were breaking on uh, the Buicks, if I recall. And the, the ruling was that um, as a final goods assembler, the automotive maker was in the best position to avoid risk in its third-party supply chain. Um, so that's Still, the prevailing case law, and I am not a lawyer, uh, on things like where do you associate um, initially associate risk. There are people that go for everybody or where the money is in the supply chain. Uh, but in general, you know, when these topics come up around IoT and software, it seems to come around the 
that the responsibility to be transparent about all the parts in your goods might fall to a final disassembler and that potentially the, the responsibility or harm because they didn't have to use those parts or they could have used better parts or whatnot. Um, and look, this is not even advocating for it. I just think that what you're seeing now is that there's been strong list of reasons to resist regulating IT and software, as Rob points out, and he articulated a few of them. And uh, these people who are default allergic to wanting to regulate that realize, are starting to realize they may have to for two reasons. One is that now we're in the point where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood, where there's a cyber-physical impact of failure, not just a loss of data. And number two, um, we're starting to see externalities or um, that the poor hygiene of one set of devices can be used to harm other services, like on Friday, where the, the poor hygiene of these devices collectively were brought to bear to do pretty big uh, damage to the web services and the, the outages after Dyne was attacked. So that kind of security debt, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm not, not going to call it a tragedy of the commons, but it's in the vicinity of starting to talk about uh, collective externalities and tragedy of the commons and perverse incentives. So I don't know what the right answers are, but I know that taking the can down the road isn't happening anymore. You're getting more earnest discussion, and hopefully smart technical folks can participate in those conversations to make sure there's at least a common ground truth instead of facts. Well, and so if you have all these different regulatory agencies that are jumping in saying, but we have a best practices, but no, we have a best practices, and is it, you know, it's relatively clear cut that if you're talking about the airplane flying in the sky, you're going to, you know, in which direction and, you know, at what altitude, et cetera, et cetera, that's going to be the FAA. That when you start getting into the communications between the systems on the radios, that you bring in the FCC. But with software and IoT devices, you're seeing, at least in the drone space, where the FCC is saying, well, we control the communications. The FAA is saying, we control the flight. And now the FTC has started looking at saying, well, but we we think we need a piece of the privacy puzzle or the safety puzzle. So whose best practices, best standards win? I think it's use case specific, and that's all getting kind of negotiated in real time. So the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, for example, it feels like they want a voluntary attestation model against some, some guiding principles. And when there's an action to take, they're using the regulatory authority for a safety issue or a safety recall. They feel like that they should lead. And the impression I get is that when it's a privacy issue, they want the FTC to lead. Um, so in some cases, it's a hybrid model. When it comes to the Food and Drug Administration, you know, they're the regulator of record, and they're going to try to do most of the things there. But I don't think there's a single-size-fits-all. And I don't think this is going to be per- pervasive, by the way. People will freak out if there's competing or inconsistent standards. And I think when you, they're... While you're looking at it, is they're all like you know little kids playing soccer and chasing the football or the, the soccer ball. Um, when there's enough of these, they are trying to do some experimentation and see which parts are common and most accepted across these. And you're going to see private sector response to you know the Chamber of Commerce is talking about. Well, absolutely. Are, 
businesses, the lawyers are going to get involved because we all, you know, job security, we need to have a say in this. The insurers are going to get involved, and that's not even going to the the states. He said, well, but it's our folks that are being, you know, our roadways and everything. So when we come back from this commercial break, we'll delve a little bit more into, okay, How do we fix this, and what are some of the best ways? But you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Back, you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz. Find us each Wednesday live from 2 to 3 on America's Web Radio. Podcasts available for download, Lawyer Liz on iTunes and other streaming services. Now, today we're talking with Rob Graham and Josh Corman on what happens when the Internet of Things, all of our devices that are now connected, essentially bite back on the Internet and are used against it through botnets and DDoS attacks. And we were talking before the break about basically the regulatory path. Everyone from the White House on down is trying to jump into the game I call the beltway ballers. They all want a seat at the table. They all want to have a say in preventing such harms or laying blame and liability, which may or may not be a good thing because it could stifle innovation. Rob, that's been one of your 
encouraging innovation and letting you know, the thinkers think has been a steady stream of some of your blog posts. Where do you see the alphabet soup going from here? Well, I see that that people are going to jump onto this and start making ill-advised regulations. We saw that with the Vassanar Agreement, where people made the reasonable idea that maybe we should stop the export of of malware, or viruses, to evil regimes who use that to attack um, dissenters in the, in their countries. So maybe we shouldn't. So maybe we should have a law against this to, or an agreement to stop exportation of of, of malware. And what they ended up doing is the recommendation said pretty much if you interpret them as they were written, that it would then impact all software that was exported, which would have been an, e- an enormous chilling effect on American business and, and exports of all types. And so, and then we went back and we've been negotiating that for like, like three years now. And so that's the sort of thing we can expect from these knee-jerk reactions to events like last Friday is people pushing bad regulations. Well, and Josh, that's one of the things you've been working through I Am the Cavalry uh, as well as Atlantic Council on is how how do you pro- prohibit or kind of jump in the way of the bad regulations, helping the legislators connect the dots? Well, at least through I Am the Cavalry, we've been focused on advocating for cyber safety and for sound design principles and for taking, you know, an educational helping hand to these safety-critical industries and public policies. So not so much advocating for specific policies, but for certain principles and some cyber sanity, so to speak. Well, and bringing (laughs) what we've seen is y'all have brought the, you know, the doers, the people writing the code and developing kind of the technical experts with the legislative and regulatory experts so that you're bridging that gap and connecting the dots, which to me is a key component that unfortunately had been missing. Or at least it it wasn't as loud as perhaps some of the other voices in the lawmaking you know sausage factory that it yeah. is. Yeah, I think um, Rob and I sometimes have loving arguments over this. Perhaps even the weekend. Um, just I think the presence. I say, do tell us about your loving weekends with Rob. <laughs> uh, yeah. No wonder I couldn't we reach either one of you. No, some of them are infamous, but I think the the, he point, the fact that you can point it really bad laws or bad regulation, uh, I don't think is, is an argument that they never have a place. And I am loath to be arguing for regulation, um, but I believe that if we had technically literate folks engaging in the conversation, you know, our reg- regulators are going to regulate. The question is, you know, how and haters informed gonna will hate. it be? Haters going to hate. <laughs> how much, how informed will it be? And what ground truth is it based on? And I think it's important to talk uh, through these things and measure twice, cut once. There's a a long history of really perverse incentives introduced by well-meaning regulation or compliance. Uh, in this particular case, um, I don't think anyone's got it figured out, and I think talking to people who disagree is not a bad thing. You know, Rob made an excellent point this weekend, and it pains me to say this, but you know, one of the arguments is that we have a shared highway. You can't just have like a, a you know a, a home-built vehicle that isn't street safe or street legal because it affects all the other passengers on the roadway, right? 
Um, well, that depends. Did I build my own uh, dr- you know, drone quad racer? I mean, <laughs> I... So, 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 so... Well, hold on, Rob, hold on. <laughs> but, you know, I think that the impetus most people have after this weekend is we should have minimum hygiene standards for IoT. And Bob makes an excellent point that um, if other countries sell lesser products to other places, we still have one Internet. And doing such minimum hygiene standards would not be sufficient on its own. There could still be a long enough tail of residual infected systems that could do the same kind of damage we just saw. I say, so, yeah. That means it's going to be a multiple approach, and you can't solve for a little piece of it, hurt innovation, and then not actually solve the problem. Well, and Rob, is that, I mean, what led to the discussion that that you brought at this point with Josh? So uh, Josh uses the shared highway model for cars. It's like when you share the highway, we should have safety standards so we don't get killed on the highway, which is, you know, is, there's nothing wrong with that logic. But it does mean, for example, that that when you have that much regulation regulating car safety, that you're only going to get a big three car manufacturers. That would be really hard for a, a, without billions of dollars of investment, to have another car company produce cars. And maybe that's okay. I mean, not having cars that, that you know, people die in all the time is probably a good, a good thing that we have these regulations, even though the cost is only a couple big car manufacturers. For IoT, we have the same sort of question. Do we want to have only GE making fridges that are internet-enabled? Or do we want five guys at the Kickstarter project making a, uh, a, a fridge device that we can then attach to our fridge to make it internet-enabled? And if we say, hey, only big corporations can do it and deal with this regulation, that's one set of choices. Saying, hey, no, I want innovation to happen everywhere. At the risk of occasionally we get DDS as like on Friday, that's another set of choices. Well, and how do you have those you know standards and rules from multiple different avenues and still encourage the innovation? Right, and these are important questions because we want innovation, we want low cost goods, we want a bunch of things. Sometimes we get everything we want. Most of the time, we don't. So to make those trade offs and to have a good system has the right balances, not just on cost and on innovation, but also on freedoms and liberties and, and our priorities. It's, it's getting tougher. Um, so, so, so my fear is is that people look at security as some sort of moral duty, that if you don't have security on your device, like these IoT devices, their security is so incredibly laughable. I mean, it's this horrible. And it's obvious things like a backdoor password you put on the Internet. Of course hackers are going to break into it. And so we laugh at them, but is that a moral weakness? Is, it, is there a moral duty to be secure? And this, it becomes a more security becomes this moral crusade. At which point we stop talking about trade offs, and because trade offs don't matter when it's a moral duty to be secure. So I hate that that moral crusade. But it's for the children. Well, there's that. <laughs> but you know, let's just take the economic lens for one second, right? The argument, one of the set of arguments you tend to hear, I've made it myself, is that if you, you know, raise minimum standards, you could raise the cost of goods, stifle innovation, and hurt free market. Uh, in the economy. Uh, it, it's just undeniable as well that at some point, you know, attacks like last week, they it, they too can stifle innovation. They too can hurt the economy. And you, it's right to use um, protections when the cost of inaction is greater than the cost of action. So instead of debating which things are important, let's identify which things are important and find the right optimums. 
for these without prejudging in advance what those are. So if it's just a, a blind, you know, moralizing of security for security's sake, that's not the right move. And if it's uh, going to say, you know, profits over patients, like we've seen all argued back and forth over the St. Jude's and Muddy Waters, MedSec uh, controversies, you know, we have to have these debates, decide what we want, and then make sure these incentives, uh, or lack thereof, achieve what we want, but it's not so simple as solving for just one whole variable. Well, and there isn't, I mean, as Rob and I were discussing before uh, you joined us, and then as you've illustrated, it's not just one variable. It's not one, I mean, when it's your toaster connecting to the internet, but using software from, you know, it, different manufacturers and it, there's so many moving pieces that it, you have your work cut out for you josh and and rob we look forward to your additional uh, blog posts and insights because you've done some uh, discussions with the with the regulators but what what can we look for next it kind of okay friday occurred uh, Brian Krebs, his website had, and really keeping an eye on where this goes. So, uh, gentlemen, hope to have you back. Thank you for you know. Thank you to uh, Josh for all that you're doing, and uh, Rob as well. Like I said, looking forward to your uh, blog post. But thank you to America's Web Radio. Thank you to uh, Hallbooth Smith. And again, gentlemen, I hope you'll come and join us on another Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz and kind of pick up where we have left off. But until next time, thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.